When I was 10, my dad was clearing out years of blackberry bushes that had overtaken much of our backyard. When he pulled the majority out, he noticed something in the ground, brown and plastic, that didn't belong. He pulled out a Chewbacca action figure from 1977, an original. After cleaning it off, it had been preserved in dirt for years in perfect condition. My older brother was too young to have owned the figure in the past, and my parents had lived on the property since the mid-70s. So the origin of the figure was a complete mystery. Maybe it was a fluke. Maybe it was destiny. But from that day forward, I was a Star Wars collector. Bespin Ice Cream Stand, the podcast about Star Wars past, present, and future. I'm your host, Josh O'Rourke, and with me as always, an elegant host for a more civilized age, Bennett Campbell Ferguson. Hello! <laughs> How's it going, Josh? It's good. It's good. Yeah, I'm proud of that one. I, I think I've told people that I uh, spend more time working on uh, your introduction than the actual episode. I, I swear <laughs> that's not true this time. <laughs> I, I I like it. I I feel like I like to think you know this, this podcast is also uh, an an elegant piece of uh, film criticism for for a more civilized age or or to bring about a more civilized age. I I don't know either either way you want to look at it. It's all either way it would be a great t shirt. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, Star Wars slash Star Wars: A New Hope. Um, I'm gonna give it a four stars right off the bat. What do you think? Jeez, I don't know. This is really hard. No, four stars, of course. <laughs> what, what else could it be? I, I would give it. I would give it more, but we decide on a four star scale, so you know it's it's a no brainer, really. <laughs> yeah, I think you'd have to be a real jerk to try to to nitpick it. I mean, obviously, you know, movies age to some degree, but uh, to me, this one still feels pretty timeless, just with a little bit of a kind of late seventies sheen. Yeah, well, and even the late seventies. Sheen, I think, is part of the the fun of it, you know. Like it, it, it feels at once timeless and of its time, which I like. And it's funny people talk about Star Wars ushering in like a more, uh, you know, optimistic populist age in terms of movies because it's often contrasted with that kind of like cynical French connection grit that preceded it. But at the same time. You know, it is a 70s movie, and, you know, it's both hopeful and also brutal. I mean, you don't see Star Wars movies now in which people get shot so many times the flesh has literally been burned off of their bones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's a little much, to be honest. I, I still, that, that's like one of my few nitpicks for that movie, is watching that uh, scene, you know, in Tatooine. When uh, you know, when Uncle Ben and Baru die, and thinking like, did you just did you just said Uncle Ben? The tie- oh my god! <laughs> For Freudian uh, oh no! <laughs> okay, the, the, I don't know anything about Star Wars. I've just been uh, nodding and smiling a lot. <laughs> 
anyway, uh, my, one of my nitpicks is definitely uh, the skeletons in Tatooine uh, when Luke returns to the homestead. And uh, I think were they tied up and then burnt and then they were just watching? Was that a message? Was that just cool because George Lucas had some plastic skeletons lying around? <laughs> <laughs> it, it could have been all of the above. Like I, I, I always thought of it as sort of an illustration of the fact that you know the Empire doesn't just keep order. You know they're a sort of absolutely you know ruthless, barbaric civilization that will you know kill people in the worst way possible. Just a point, just to prove a point. I mean, you look at you know, later in the movie when Tarkin basically blows up Alderaan for, for yucks, he doesn't even, you know, quote unquote need to at that point. <laughs> this is true. No, you're right. And I think it's like a good shorthand for like evil, you know, not just did they burn the house down, but they're obviously dead. Yeah. And I, I guess if he didn't see the skeletons, you know, then what would he look around? I, I, I guess it makes the scene move quicker and, and indicate immediately. Yes, they're dead. And this is bad. Yeah. Well, let, let me ask you this, Josh, because you, 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 having rewatched the film, it, it, it's kind of interesting the way people look at, you know, Star Wars. I, it's, it's funny. <laughs> I, when I say Star Wars, I, I feel like I'm referring to all of Star Wars, but it's, I keep trying to avoid saying A New Hope because I actually hate that title. But, but, but it's, it's interesting. It seems like there's two schools of thought. There's the one school of thought that says, like, you know, this movie is, you know, pure and perfect. And even if empire is more sophisticated, it, you know, it's not the same magic. And then there's the school of thought that says, you know, empire took everything to the next level. You know, it was, you know, more morally complex. It was more visually beautiful, you know, that, that, that's where things, you know, really get kicked up a notch. I mean, how, how do you feel about, you know, the original star Wars looking back now and like its place in the, the pantheon? I mean, uh, looking at it in the in in the place in its place amongst the Star Wars saga, um, I think it's the most complete and the best of all nine. Because from opening to closing, it's a perfect movie and it works on its own. It also works to set stuff up. Um, like, yeah, I think Empire is a better made movie. I think the dialogue is better. I think it's got more humor. I think it sets up some really good stakes. I think it shows some cool characters. But um, for me, the original Star Wars, uh, you know, to me, is the best in the Star Wars saga. And then also, uh, I think people sort of are so enmeshed in the Star Wars universe, they kind of forget, like, they, they forget to watch Star Wars as, like, um, a movie disconnected from, you know, decades of merchandise and sequels and stuff. And it's like, if you look at it with eyes anew, like, Star Wars is actually, a like, a really damn good movie. It's just well-made, has really snappy dialogue. Um, the humor really hit me this time. Um, I love the characters. I, I think that none of the scenes overstay their welcome. And it keeps building and building. And I, I just think structurally it works really well without feeling like um, you have to psychoanalyze it. Which, of course, we can and probably will. But I mean, just, <laughs> just like turning your brain off and watching it, uh, it works really well. Um, which is probably not a high compliment. That's just a, <laughs> a minor compliment. Well, you know, one thing that's always struck me, and I, I, I apologize to you know all, all the star nerds, 
who are listening because they've probably heard this story over and over again. But, you know, there was this debate behind the scenes with a lot of people telling George Lucas, you got to introduce Luke earlier. You got to introduce Luke earlier. And it was George Lucas who said, you know, no, I want this really, you know, clean line of events where the droids take you to Luke, Luke takes you to Obi-Wan, and then Obi-Wan takes you to Han. And I, I just feel like that, you know, really gets to, you know, what a kind of slick storyteller he was back in those days. You know, he, he understood that less was more back then. And he understood, you know, how powerful it would be, you know, that, you know, the first time we're really introduced to Luke is, uh, you know, when the Jawas show up at the homestead. And the first time we hear his name is, you know, Aunt Rue calling, Luke, tell Uncle if he gets a translator, make sure it speech, speaks Bocce, you know. <laughs> it's like, that. it's one of the greatest introductions in all of, you know, cinema with like Mark Hamill running across the desert and, you know, the music starting up again, like, and it's like, oh, you know, this guy is going to be important. This, this guy looks like a total schmuck in his ridiculous white tunic, you know, running around in the, the, the desert, you know, he's actually, you know, going to be a hero and a badass. So it's, you know, that's, I just think, you know, George Lucas in a weird way is kind of underrated as a, storyteller because you know so many of the things he does so well you know got buried under you know years of cgi and gungans and whatnot and revision as well and just just him wanting yes to change yes everything. yeah yeah well i'm sure we're going to talk about the special edition <laughs> oh yes there will be talk oh uh, i wasn't really going to talk about it but um i was kind of thinking about what you said and and um I watched all the deleted scenes recently and I thought, um, was there ever a cut where the deleted scenes, particularly, um, the ones that show Luke, um, hanging out with his like teenage friends, was there ever a cut where that was in? I no, I have no idea. I, I mean, it, it's funny, you know, ultimately as interesting as I find those deleted scenes to be, I mean, the, the like, for instance, like, if, you know, you had the scene with Luke and Biggs, the the end of the film with Biggs showing up would make more sense, you know. But but then again, it's almost, like, more potent at the beginning if we don't see Biggs and all we know of him is just Luke saying, you know, Biggs is right, I'm never going to get out of here. And it's, <laughs> it, it, I don't know, it's like, it's it's almost like, you know, I think I like the idea of him being, like, so isolated and so trapped on the farm and the fact that we don't see his friends and that all we hear of them really is, you know, Uncle Owen saying, you know, oh, we can't go hang out with them at the Tashi station. Like there's, there's something kind of a uh, kind of poignant about that. This, this feeling of the, the loneliest boy in the universe, like all he has for company are these weird droids and his, you know, his aunt and uncle. And, and that makes it, I think so much more poignant at the end where he kind of, you know, makes his own family with, with, with Han and, and Leia, who that's, I mean, that's, you know, again, and I think this is why part of why this is such a great film is because despite all the, you know, intergalactic trimmings and trappings, it's really about, you know, the journey we all go through where we, you know, take flight and you, you, you kind of build your own world and your own bonds with people, you know, separate from what you grew up with. And that's, that's why it has this, you know, resonance beyond its time and, and beyond even the genre, frankly. 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think what helps is that Star Wars, at least in this day and age, doesn't feel like a hard sci-fi movie. Yeah. It feels more fantasy um, and, and and sort of speaks to universal you know, themes. That's the boring way of what you just said, but... <laughs> Well, I was thinking, you know, you've you've uh, you've been telling me for a, a long time that I, I need to watch the the Mandalorian, which I, I finally did, and I, I think it's Woo! great. And one of the things I was really struck by in watching that show, I, I just I just watched the first episode of the second season. That was the last one I watched, and I was really impressed with like by how primal and mythic it felt. Like it really felt like an old school western and the i don't know just like the you know the 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 townspeople and you know moss pelgo on on tatooine you know having to you know work side by side with the you know tuscan raiders and and you know din jar and you know having to to translate and broker these differences you know it, it felt like a like a kind of you know like western where like like the townspeople you know have to you know make peace with the you know, the indigenous people that, you know, face a common threat or something like that. It, it felt like so, you know, old and so fresh at the same time. And that's, that, that's kind of the, you know, the story with all of Star Wars, really. Well, yeah. And what I like about Mandalorian so much is that it expands on the mythology in like a not stupid way, too. It says, here's something from the Star Wars universe you sort of see. We're going to expand on it, but it's going to be like true to the universe. And I think I like that. For the most part, everything that's in the previous Star Wars movies and Mandalorian uh, that comes back it feels authentic in that universe. And watching it, it doesn't feel like fan fiction. And that's what I think one of the things we like about Star Wars. We like when the, you know, the the the, the mythology you know gets built upon in, in in different ways. Like you know, of course, I'm sure we'll we'll talk about this. The the added Jabba the Hut scene in the the special edition. Well, of course, in the original version, you know, Jabba was just a guy who was referenced, and then finally in Return of the Jedi, that's when you see that oh, Jabba's this you know giant slug that you know looks like he you know weighs about as much as an eighteen wheeler, and <laughs> you're 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 kind of you know building off that aside. You know, if I if I don't you know pay off Jabba the Hut, I'm a dead man. So it. We, we well, like, I, mean, I think, like, that let's, expansion. Let's talk about that scene a little bit, because I, I think uh, that's important. People like to shit on the special edition, uh, and I'll say I watched the special edition for this episode um, just to kind of get reacquainted, and you know what? Some of the little flourishes are okay. I think anything, any additional scene doesn't seem to work. Obviously, the Greedo scene doesn't work, and let's talk about that in a minute. But for me, the Jabba scene is... is uh, to me, the Jabba scene completely epitomizes what uh, George Lucas is thinking and how wrong he is. Because, <laughs> yeah, like you said, I, I think Jabba works as that mysterious character where where your imagination is going to be far worse than anything that you see on screen. And for two episodes, you talk, you hear about this vile gangster and you think, who is this guy? And it really pays off in Return of the Jedi when you see him. But if you see him in A New Hope, for a lot of reasons it doesn't work. But the biggest one is it's just a redundant scene. It talks about stuff that's already happened in the Greedo scene. Um, and also, I was really struck this time about how Han has the upper hand. Uh, and he's sort of telling Jabba what to do and calling the shots, even though later on he seems genuinely like fearful of him. So, 
that's my biggest nitpick of the whole special edition, I think, other than the Return of the Jedi musical scene. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, talking talking about special editions, like, I mean, I I'm of two minds on the special edition. You know, on, on the one hand, you know, yes, I I the first versions of the movies I saw were the original versions. My friend's dad had you know actual VHS copies of them, but then after that, you know, really, I grew up you know watching the special editions. I had this beautiful, beautiful, you know, like. VHS set in this gold box that I still have, even though I no longer have a VCR, just because it looks so cool. And I like how it looks on my my Star Wars shelf. Uh, and yes, I have a Star Wars shelf. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that kind of nerd here goes without saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and so you know, I, I grew up with a lot of those changes, and you know, not thinking much of them, and you know, thinking as a little kid, like, oh, it's just you know, more Star Wars. You know, more Star Wars can't be a bad thing. And then later, you know, I think I fell out of love with a lot of the the changes and, and saw like why, you know, they've you know been so frustrating to a lot of people. I mean, particularly that Jabba scene. You know, when someone pointed out to me that that scene conveys like almost no information that we didn't already have, I was like, oh my god, that's right. It, it's it's totally superfluous. And this was you know maybe kind of the beginning of the erosion of George Lucas's talents of a, of a storyteller where it was just, you know, I'm going to chuck it in because I wanted to get it right the first time. And, uh, the, 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 and I didn't, you know, rather than just, you know, accepting that, you know, whoever cut it out, you know, whether it was, you know, Richard Chu or Marshall Lucas or, or Paul Hirsch, you know, probably cut it out for, you know, a reason because it, was totally unnecessary and sucked. And, and in the original version had like a big, you know, bearded dude in a fur coat, which it's yeah. funny. I have seen some of those pictures and that was, that was quite a sight. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of ridiculous. Um, no, you're right though. It, it sort of seems like it's like George Lucas wanting to relive like high school again. Like that was the one that got away. I mean, star Wars in general. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, that, that seems problematic and, uh, it's almost as bad as the Greedo scene right before it and the, the tweak they made there. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about that. I mean, just, uh, the idea that Greedo would miss at a point blank range is so absurd, but I mean, it gets into this, this more kind of like moral debate about should Han, you know, kill in cold blood, you know, or is it necessary that he kills in cold blood because we, we should start out with him being like kind of an amoral guy who ultimately, you know, finds a cause, you know, finds redemption, finds something to believe in. I, I mean, to me, it's it's so weird that, that George Lucas had this, you know, need to sort of almost soften Han at the expense of the the story when, you know, years down the line, you know, he was going, he was going to show like a, a live man, you know, having his skin being burned off in Revenge of the Sith. Like, <laughs> it's like, George, you know, get over this dogma that, you know, Star Wars has to be, you know, perfectly, you know, family friendly. I mean, the reality is it's always been like kind of a, kind of a, a gruesome franchise. Yet, Yes, for, you know, children certainly but but to be honest like even you know the original film was was kind of a, a grown-up movie 
for children, realistically speaking. Yeah, I, I, I see it more as like Wizard of Oz or um, Willy Wonka or something like that, where it's um, for kids, also for adults, and for both, it's still like a dangerous world. Yeah, you can't you can't just like shy away from that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so but, too. Uh, but yeah, speaking of Han, I mean, it completely softens the character. He's no longer a badass who sees scum and villainy and then shoots it because he knows he'll die if he doesn't. It just turns him into another character that sort of isn't doing the right thing, and and yeah. and that's what bothers me. Yeah, yeah. It's just, I don't know. It just, it just becomes a, it becomes a distraction, you know. It becomes very awkward and kind of, you know, takes you out of the movie. I mean, it's if we're, you know, having a debate about it, you know, clearly it didn't work and it was a, a bad choice because it, you know, you know, is a distraction from all the, you know, the wonderful film things the film does. And it's funny. I feel like George Lucas's approach to the special editions was the opposite of Ridley Scott's approach to Blade Runner, where like Ridley Scott like just kept like stripping away you know, more and more to the point where he got like the, you know, the, the purest and, and cleanest version of the film, you know, whereas like George Lucas, you know, just kept like layering more and more crap on top to the point where you end up with blinking Ewoks, which thankfully I haven't seen that, you know, version yet. And I don't really want to. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. No, but the difference is no offense to George Lucas, but Ridley Scott and say like Steven Spielberg with e the E.T. restoration and some of his other stuff, um, they've made more than one movie in 20 years. Yes, um, that's true. Yeah, I think that's huge because then it's uh, all their babies are precious, but they're not as precious if, if they've only made one. Um, yeah. So I think yeah. that's part of the problem of, of why George is so um, sacred about you know, Star Wars or the original Star Wars trilogy. Yeah, no, that's, that's really interesting. I mean, it's funny cause he also, in addition to, you know, giving the special, a, a treatment, special edition treatment to Star Wars, he also did it for THX 1138. And it's, it's kind of weird to think that, you know, we had this, you know, really, you know, beautiful trilogy of films that started off his career, you know, THX American Graffiti, and Star Wars, and then we get into the prequels. I mean, I mean, you you told me about you know that quote from Francis Ford Coppola where he said, you know, I, I wish we'd had more. You know, George Lucas is really talented. You know, he should have you know given us more than six films. Like, I think that's so on point. I mean, I would have been excited to you know see him make these you know experimental films. He kept claiming he was going to go off and make. I would have been excited to see him you know try and make another film like American Graffiti, you know, just a very, you know, kind of earthbound character study about, you know, ordinary people living their lives. I mean, obviously he had range. You know, I would kill to see like a low budget George Lucas 80s movie where he thought like I'm making or producing, you know, all these huge Howard the Duck, Indiana Jones movies to varying <laughs> levels of success. <laughs> I would love for him to have just gone and made, uh, you know, a $2 million comedy. I think that would have been awesome. Uh, and yeah, you're right. I, I, I forgot about American Graffiti and THX. Um, what's weird to me is that he doesn't really mess with American Graffiti. But is it because it's not um, science fiction? <laughs> like, like why, why does he not feel precious about that? 
for one thing, I mean, he, he messed with it a little bit because there's some footage that Universal made him cut out that he went back and put in. But but I, from what I know, I, I'm not even sure which scenes they were. I don't, I don't think it was anything as glaring as Greedo shooting first. I mean, I think, yeah, special, you know, I think you know science fiction is part of it because with American graffiti, you know it's not like the the technology has you know evolved in such significant ways where you know Lucas is going to look back and go, oh that you know looks so dated. You know I think there's a you know something very timeless uh, about American graffiti. You know there it's not like you know oh that explosion could look better. You know, <laughs> yeah, Wolfman Jack should be younger. I think you should recast <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, we're gonna de-age Wolfman Jack. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. I um, I, I think Star Wars is like I said, the one that got away, and I think that forever he will tweak it. Oh, no, that's not true. I I think he's done tweaking. It seems like now that he sold to Disney. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, the Disney's not done tweaking it because my clunky, uh, clunky. Well, I I heard that George Lucas made what uh, was responsible for that. Uh, <laughs> that final. Oh, you're tweet. kidding! <laughs> of course he did. I, I should have known. I mean, I, I probably should have researched that first, but I'm eighty three percent sure it's him. <laughs> well, that doesn't shock me at all. I mean. um, but but yeah, and also the Blu-ray set from a few years ago. Um, Instead of Greedo shooting first, they shoot at the same time, which somehow is supposed to like fix the special edition problem without going back to the original. Yeah, that still makes no sense. Yeah, it's even worse because then it's just saying Han's a little slow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, uh, I wonder if George Lucas would ever, you know, be able to let go of Star Wars, and I, I think the answer is no. It's, I mean, I think it's always going to be. One more thing with uh, with him, which you know, I mean, again, I think that's you know one of the that is one of the problems with not making you know more movies with just you know having that. I mean, we I don't know with with a lot of the great directors, it feels like it's full steam ahead, and if you know you didn't get everything you wanted, you know, on a certain film, then it's like tough luck. You know, I have this other thing to you know you know express myself, but apparently. Lucas expresses himself by, you know, <laughs> special editioning it up. Yeah, over and over, for sure. So, uh, I mean, speaking of to that, do you ever think we'll live in a world where Disney releases the original, original Star Wars trilogy um, on a semi-high-definition format? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, the... I heard I heard an interview where J.J. Abrams was actually about this, and and he, you know, of course, being the wholesome nerd that he is, wanted to see the original versions uh, released. But he he, I believe he kind of intimated that there is uh, something stopping Disney from doing that. So I would imagine that was maybe part of the conditions of the the sale of Lucasfilm to Disney. So. I think I would be very shocked if we saw those uh, original versions. But of of course, I mean, I think if Disney can find a way to do it, they'll do it because, you know, they can make money off of that. But yeah, that's that's my take. I, I guess I think it's unlikely. I sort of wonder, too, if like all the Star Wars fans, this is in quotes, 
<laughs> all the Star Wars fans, if they're a small enough group that actually wants the original, like if they were to release a, you know, say a 4K box set and the original movies were on it, would that be a bigger selling point really? Or is it just a small enough subsection of outspoken Star Wars fans? Like maybe it's, you know, one, two percent of the population, people like us that love Star Wars to death, but the general public doesn't even realize there's differences. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I do. I mean, on the one hand, I feel like, I mean, sometimes I feel like in terms of like really, really hardcore Star Wars fans, I sometimes feel like there's fewer of us than we think. And sometimes I feel like there's, you know, more of us than we think. Like, you know, I, I don't really... I don't really talk to that many people where they have like the, the kind of, you know, intense love of Star Wars that Trekkies have for, for Star Trek. Whereas I know a lot of people who just kind of, you know, generally like Star Wars. But then again, you know, last year, this was one of my favorite, favorite assignments uh, I ever did. I, I interviewed for Willamette Week, a uh, Missy Thingolstad, who's, who's kind of like one of, you know, the, the leading people in uh, Star Wars Oregon, you know, the, the, you know, big kind of like reigning Star Wars fan group in the region. And just like, you know, like hearing about, you know, all the, you know, events like her and, you know, her folks are, are a part of and the, the stuff they go to, like, made me realize like, well, it's actually, you know, a pretty vast amount of people, you know, who, who go, you know, really deep with this stuff, you know, like I, you know, I, I mean, I, I take it pretty far, but I've never taken it as far as some of these people. Like I never, you know, made a movie quality stormtrooper costume and like, you know, showed up at charity events. So there's a, and there's, I think there's a lot of people out there who would would buy that, you know, 4K set ultimately. That that's fair, and I, I think yeah, those kinds of fans, and uh, it, it would be a um, sort of a gesture of respect to do that and i do think i don't want to say we're owed it because certainly that's not what i mean but i think it, it would be um an important um move uh for disney um what's the group that uh that she is part of so there's i mean the there's the there's the two big groups like there's the the 501st mm -hmm. you know the the imperials and then the the rebel legion and then and so i i think as I understand it, you know, there are different like kind of like regional divisions of those. Okay. So, so for instance, like Star Wars Oregon en encompasses, you know, like both people in Oregon who are, you know, members of the 501st and the Rebel uh, Legion. So, yeah, that's, I think I, it was like, gosh, it was more than a year ago that I did that interview, but I, I believe like that's how it all, it all breaks down. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. That's really cool. Yeah, maybe I'm um, underestimating the amount of people that uh, can like nerd out over Star Wars. So I'm I'm gonna do my uh, now traditional Bestman ice cream stand Star Wars monologue, <laughs> which you know originally this started as more of a you know scene analysis, and it's gotten looser as we've recorded more episodes to the point where now it's just it's usually more my general thoughts on a, a theme of uh, Star Wars so this one is about Luke specifically 
Luke Skywalker walks across the desert at dusk. Irritably, he kicks at the sand, then stands before the twin sons of Tatooine as they descend beneath the horizon. As the camera gazes into the dying light, John Williams's music radiates quiet yearning. Yet when the film cuts to Luke's face, the score swells with feeling. One boy's emotions are bigger than the sun. The journey of picking my favorite Star Wars character has been like searching for a soulmate. I did dinner in a movie with Han Solo, shared a studio apartment with Darth Vader, and even had a one-night stand with Boba Fett. He kept his helmet on. But for many years now, I've been married to Luke, the least cool and most poignant character in Mr. Lucas's galaxy far, far away. When we first meet Luke in the original Star Wars film, he's ensconced in the world of his aunt and uncle, Beru and Owen Lars. Life consists of fixing grubby machinery, dreams of attending the Imperial Academy, and yes, whining about wanting to go to the Tashi station to pick up some power converters. Luke hungers for adventure, not just because he's selfish. Consciously or unconsciously, he knows that until he builds a life of his own, he'll be as emotionally hampered as a droid with a restraining bolt. And so he builds, haphazardly constructing a new existence that is like a multi-level home. You step into the living room and find the idealism of Princess Leia and Obi-Wan Kenobi. You walk into the kitchen and discover the suave cynicism and barely concealed conscience of Han Solo. You go upstairs to use the bathroom and find Yoda sitting on the toilet, lost in a tortured, soulful rant. And a trip to the attic leads you to Vader, who is lurking amidst boxes of battered family heirlooms that tell a different story about your life than the one you were once told to believe. Of course, in the first film, we're not there yet. He has too much of his father in him, Beru says of Luke. That's what I'm afraid of, Owen gravely replies. Do Luke's aunt and uncle know he's the son of the Dark Lord of the Sith? Maybe not, but they understand that the galaxy is filled with truths that their nephew is not ready to face. The boy who looks longingly at a binary sunset has yet to awaken to the possibilities of a non-binary universe. A universe that can't be divided into the Rebel Alliance and the Galactic Empire into the dark side and the light. And yet I like to think that in later years, Luke looks back on his younger self with compassion, not contempt. In The Empire Strikes Back, Yoda tells Luke, Adventure. Heh. Excitement. Heh. A Jedi craves not these things. True enough, but those were the cravings that lighted the way for Luke. The way to Han, Leia, and everyone else who made him realize that his life was worth fighting for. Damn, I love that. That's really cool. I, I, I don't know if I could really add anything uh, to that. <laughs> I think that's pretty wonderful. Um, other than to say, yeah, I, I mean, I think Luke's everybody's like second favorite character. After Han? <laughs> After Han or 3PO or Vader or something. But like, but ultimately Luke's what holds the original trilogy together. Arguably the saga. yeah. Which is why, you know, the the new trilogy is, is such a um, disappointment um, to everybody. I think we the promise of Luke in Empire Strikes Back or Return of the Jedi sets up something so much better. Yeah, I I, I totally agree. And I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, going on a, a, a truly epic rant about that in a future episode. <laughs> I mean, from... For me, you know, what I really wanted to get into was the, you know, this transformation I had, you know, in, in terms of as a kid, you know, you, you like 
all the, you know, characters who are either, you know, have a cool mask or are, you know, a, a creature of some kind or just a, a badass like Han Solo. Yeah. And then I found, you know, over time that really like, you know, Luke's journey was for me kind of like almost oddly enough, the, the main attraction to the original trilogy and more than ever, like I feel really drawn to the kind of small intimate moments with him in the first film. Like I, I really love, you know, that moment, you know, after he's destroyed the death star, when he and uh, Han and Leia are kind of walking out of the main hangar, like with their arms, you know, over each other's shoulders, smiling. And you know, that this is, you know, the beginning of, you know, this, this beautiful bond that's going to last for decades. It's going to carry them, you know, through this, war that's going to give them the the strength to survive and you know the the culmination of that journey you know starting with you know luke's isolation at the beginning of the film and building to this and and just you know moments where i've always found you know luke's choices to be interesting like my appreciation continues to deepen you know for that moment where han says you know why don't you come with us you know you're pretty good in a fight we could uh, use you And, and you know luke has this choice between you know staying and fighting the good fight and you know, going off with Han and Chewie and being relatively safe and, you know, his his idealism, you know, fully, you know, rears forth, you know, you're turning your back on them. They could use a good pilot like you. And just the, I don't know, the the, the journey of this boy becoming a man, you know, there, there's something, you know, so, you know, so beautiful about that. And it only gets more poignant as the movie, you know, go on. I mean, my God, by the time, you know, he's he's burning his father's armor, alone in the woods. I mean, you know, my God, that's just like, I, it's the kind of thing, like even just like thinking about that is enough to get me choked up, you know? <laughs> no, I think Luke is the eyes and the ears of the viewer though, but the difference is um, he's a really well-crafted character, a very round character. Yes. A lot of movies and TV shows or, or books, um, create characters that aren't really anything but the eyes and the ears uh, of the character. And, and because of that, sometimes the author is afraid to give them um, too many thoughts and feelings about stuff. Uh, one, one thing I want to speak to about that is, uh, you know, <laughs> one, one of the, one of the, like the, the fandoms I understand the least is the, is the elite battle angel fandom. I, I, I don't understand what the obsession is with that movie you know i think that film is just awful frankly and one of the things i think is awful about it is that you know alita basically is a is a catalyst for exposition like she spends you know a lot of the movie like just asking questions like why is this this way why is this this way you know and it's just i mean i gotta I got interrupt or at least offer the rebuttal of uh have you read the original you know books no, no, I haven't. Ha, <laughs> ah, gotcha. Now, I'll say this. I think if if you like the movie and you haven't read the books, then that's weird. But I think a lot of people, it's sort of, they like the series and the movie's okay. Sort of like how we feel about the Harry Potter uh, movies. Well, I, I, I see, I, that, that, that's fair, yeah. And I think in terms of like how this all connects to, you know, Luke in Star Wars is, I mean, for one thing, you know, Luke does more than you know, simply, you know, kind of like ask, you know, questions so people can explain things for the audience. You know, he's on, you know, a, a very, you know, personal, emotional journey of his own. And also, I, I, I feel like, you know, Luke 
is the is the best version of a, of a Neo like character. You know, even though of course he came before Neo. Like I think Neo's journey in the first Matrix is really great. You know, there's there's this kind of timeless pull of a guy who starts out being an agent of the system. You know, being a drone in a cubicle to uh, you know you know gaining free will and you know becoming the potential savior of humanity. But once he's basically Superman in the, you know, Reloaded and Revolutions, he's boring. Where Luke, you know, in each film, he always has, you know, some personal demon he's battling. I mean, in Empire, he is so, you know, messed up and angry and resistant to, you know, everything Yoda is trying to teach him to the point where he, you know, basically becomes his own worst enemy and ends up, you know, dangling underneath Cloud City with with one hand and he's in a precarious <laughs> position emotionally in return of the Jedi as well, because, you know, he's believing that, you know, one of the worst tyrants in the history of the galaxy can be redeemed, you know, which, you know, probably sounds like craziness to, you know, his sister when he tells her that. So, you know, Luke is always, you know, growing and, and always uh, changing and, and until, the last Jedi when he basically just, you know, goes in reverse, but <laughs> that, that's a battle for another day. <laughs> Obi-Wan. Now that's a name I've not heard in a long time. A long time. <laughs> I know, I know, it was the worst. You know, you know what it reminds me of, and I mean, no offense to this, uh, is the Star Wars radio drama where they have the uh, sort of sound alikes, and you're like, "That's not Han Solo." <laughs> I, you know, I, 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 the one that I thought sounded good in that was I thought I thought Brock Peters was uh, was good as Darth Vader because he has that you know he oh, has yeah. like the requisite like you know booming voice. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I need to listen to those. To me, those were the shit. I remember going on car rides to like San Francisco and back, and getting in the entire like uh, first or fourth episode, uh, and and being amazed, like, oh my god, it's almost exactly timed perfectly for a car <laughs> ride. Uh, That's so great. Yeah, definitely, I highly recommend those to everybody. They're a little cheesy, but not a lot cheesy. They're so much fun. One one of the best Christmas gifts I ever got was a, uh, you know the first of the radio dramas like on a and on a on cassette you know just a big you know big you know beautiful box with like all those tapes in there it's a, it was yes. a, that was a real kick <laughs> yeah no they're super fun and i like that they uh i think they add a little bit here and there too no yeah yeah they do yeah well it's funny you know i remember you know growing up i i would buy the star wars insider every month you know had so much fun with that magazine and until it kind of crapped out but like often, you know, Pablo Hidalgo would would answer Star Wars questions in his column. He would look to uh, the radio dramas to just you know kind of reveal things about continuity. You know, explaining things like why you know Darth Vader says there will be no one to stop us this time. You know, <laughs> so it's it's fun that the radio dramas like still have this relevance. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. Josh, do you want to do a voice? Uh, no. <laughs> I, I think it would be unfair for you to do one and me not, but I I haven't prepared one, but uh, I, I'm going to attempt um, this with the caveat, the, the breathing will sound good and the rest will suck. <laughs> no. 
find your lack of faith disturbing. Disturbing. I can't do it. <laughs> That's awful. <laughs> I hate this segment. I'll say it. You were right though. The, the breathing the breathing was good though. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I I've had do, do you mind if I do one more? I, w- I want to give it another please, try. Please. Okay. This will be a different one. Listen to the Martu, they're dying. Curse my metal body, I wasn't fast enough. <laughs> That's pretty good. I buy your 3PO much more. Maybe it's because if I were in Star Wars, I would be a 3PO. Like, I would totally be, you know, the guy just, like, cowering. I would, I would not be Han or... Or Luke, you know, I would not, I would not charge a garrison of, uh, of, uh, of stormtroopers. I, I would be, you know, the one going, oh, to don't leave me. <laughs> so would I. Well, I think that's all the time we have. My name is Josh O'Rourke. You can find me on Twitter at I am Josh O. Ben, where can we find you? Uh, you can find me at T H O Bennett, and you know, check out uh, the Spidey scenes podcast there which uh, often features the work of a fine gentleman uh, named joshua work so yeah come come swing with us <laughs> <laughs> by the time this airs too i think we'll be on spider-man 3 which uh i'm not <laughs> looking forward to uh and i have a lot yeah. of thoughts <laughs> yeah you know I, I it's funny i've been i've been breaking down the uh you know kind of you know which scenes of spider-man 3 we're gonna cover in which episodes and, you know, like, I was realizing, like, with Spider-Man 2, it was so clean. Like, we got through the first day in Peter Parker's life in that movie in one episode. And I was looking at Spider-Man 3, and I was like, oh, my God. Like, it's going to take, like, like three episodes to get through the first day in Peter Parker's life in that movie. Because so much happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, talk about happening. everything but the kitchen sink. <laughs> All right. Well, um, I guess we'll see you next time, and the Force will be with you. Always. Always.